0: My name is Justin McClure, I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the spooky important cinema club, Shocktober. <gasps> <laughs> oh. I stole your <laughs> <laughs> word. Avant to suck your blood. It's alive. It's alive. So this week, we're talking about something that we always get messages along the lines of, you haven't talked about David Cronenberg
1: yet? It's true. We've never talked about David Cronenberg. He's one of the most recognizable names in cinema. I think he is the default consensus choice of most famous Canadian director of all time. And uh, we've never talked about him before. Why is that?
0: I feel because he's been talked to death. Yeah. And at any point that we're going to make, there is like 30 books on the subject or other podcasts that have talked about him. And we didn't even try to approach it from an interesting angle, like we're only going to talk about Fast Company and M. Butterfly. Nah, nah, nah. This is Shocktober. We're talking about his horror films that everybody knows.
1: So uh, speaking of points that everybody already knows, let me just quote Mr. Joe Bob Briggs, who in his book Profoundly Disturbing described Cronenberg as 12 body, 20 breasts? (laughs) The first director to make the human body itself the source of all horror. He took the Frankenstein myth and made it universal. He created entire worlds in which everyone is Dr. Frankenstein, and everyone is also the creature. Folks, you knew that already. I knew that already. He's the body horror
0: guy. Body horror? What is this term? It's one that's associated only with David Cronenberg. You cannot mention that term without somebody going, oh, that's very Cronenbergian. Like, it Denote something specific.
1: This is another one of those weeks where I thought I was going to have more fun than I did because I like David Cronenberg. You like David Cronenberg. He's made a bunch of absolute bangers and he is absolutely an artist, somebody with a set of recurring preoccupations, somebody who's worldview has become an idiom you know just as we know what lynchian means just as we know what felini means we know what cronenbergian means uh he's made films i mean it's an extraordinary career that he's had films that have played the grind house films that have played the art house you know the highest of high art uh the lowest of low trash and yet all of these films are very in very close proximity to each other so all of that's very interesting Uh, He also makes very cold films, uh, very uh, difficult and unpleasant films, and films that I think have a certain reactionary streak that caught me off guard this time. Uh, Even though it shouldn't have caught me off guard, because there's already been so much discourse about Cronenberg being a reactionary filmmaker, you know, by Robin Wood, especially. I
0: think that when you're in high school and you're discovering the films of David Cronenberg, what you react is just the stuff that's on the surface, the disfiguration of the human body, the idea that things can change in ways that they should not change. And there's horror there, and it's so in-your-face that it's easy to kind of absorb. But watching the movies this week, the thing that really popped out at me is like what you said. is like, oh, uh, you know, Cronenberg seems like a bit of a (laughs) fuddy-duddy when he's talking about these things. That he is documenting these horrors, but the way that he's approaching some of these topics is kind of like, Isn't this gross? People having sex? Huh?
1: huh (laughs) yes and this definitely leapt out to me as we watched his first feature film shivers also known as they came from within and i have to admit to you i had never seen this movie before
0: (gasps) you hadn't seen it when it played at like the (laughs) hundred university of toronto screenings like it feels like every two months they would like dust off that print and give it a spin
1: yeah i i never did and you know what can you say
0: produced by ivan reitman the director of ghostbusters listen i
1: promise that i'm gonna put a moratorium on bringing up bringing up Roger Ebert very soon. But I was uh, skimming his review of Eastern Promises. And I just want to read you two sentences from it. He said, Eastern Promises is no ordinary crime thriller, just as Cronenberg is no ordinary director. Beginning with low-rent horror films in the 1970s, because he could get them financed, Cronenberg has moved film by film into the top rank of directors. (laughs) Now, watching Shivers, I mean, it's a low-budget horror film, perhaps it played Grindhouse's But like a lot of filmmakers who emerged from so-called exploitation movies, you know, Abel Ferreira, John Waters, David Lynch, the preoccupations are there from the beginning. The style is there from the beginning. Shivers, you know, if it cost $10 million more, could have been a movie that he made in the 80s or 90s.
0: The thing about Shivers is that, like you said, his style is already there, especially like watching all these movies in quick succession. You see that like Cronenberg... The way he places his camera is not showy, but it's very deliberate. There's like a punchy, almost like comic book way that he frames all of this stuff. He is not a subtle director. He's an obvious one, and that's to his strength.
1: When Robin Wood, the great Marxist critic, was writing about David Cronenberg, he talked about how Shiver, Rabbit, and The Brood, which are the first three feature films, they form a kind of loose trilogy and he said, their basis is that a man of science invents something that he believes will benefit mankind and promote social progress. He uses a woman as the chief or sole guinea pig, and the results are unpredictably catastrophic, and they lead to a mini-apocalypse. You can see that in Shivers, which is, um, you know, to put it in a hacky way, it's a, a film about the-, the fallout or their repercussions or the ramifications of the sexual revolution – It's a movie where there's this virus that runs through this high-rise-like apartment building, and I say high-rise in the J.G. Ballard sense. You know, it's a big, uh, sterile, antiseptic, ultra modern,
0: self-contained. There is like a doctor's office in it. There's the idea that you would never have to leave. I believe they say it's on an island as well
1: in Montreal. But there's this thing that originates as an aphrodisiac that ends up turning all of the women, especially, into uh, sex mad creatures. And like, it's a thing that, like, it's a living organism. You know, it's it's something that exists within the body and gets transferred like a disease. Yeah, it
0: looks. Looks like a big kind of like floppy turd slash
1: penis. (laughs) That's right. Um, This is where the body horror comes in, because in so many of David Cronenberg's movies, disease itself, it's manifested in, you know, scary, hideous monsters. But also disease is metaphorical of a kind of social failing. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that, you know, we can talk about stuff that kind of rubbed us the wrong way, but we should also talk positively that like this film is claustrophobic its style works. It's gross. It's horrifying. The kind of sense of doom that permeates it throughout is very engaging. You know, when it started, I messaged Will, I'm like, oh yeah, this is like J.G. Ballard's High Rise. And then by the end, I'm like, oh no, this is more like James Herbert's The Fog, which were like these trashy paperbacks that were being released in the 70s, which was like a disparate cast of characters who were all just murdered one by one in grosser and grosser ways. I
1: think Shivers is good. I found it a little bit less ingratiating than some of his later ones. I think because it's such a big Cast of characters, I didn't feel. I'm gonna sound like the guy in line for the movie at An- in Annie Hall when I say this, but I didn't feel the emotional connection to it. Like <laughs> it, it was a very cold and alienating experience for me watching civilization collapse and watching all of these kind of sketchy figures um, eat themselves apart in this movie. And
0: there's also a sense that beyond the grossness of like the penis monster, there's some weird asides where it's like, oh no, gay people—they're the scariest of them all at one point the hero who is the two-fisted doctor is walking through the hallways and he sees like a woman attacking a man doesn't phase him he sees like another woman attacking a man doesn't phase him and then like two very effeminate men come out of a room and the guy's like ah and he goes and like hides in an apartment and they come and like knock on his door and they're like hey you want a party and the film presents it as like this is the greatest horror which is what Watching it this time, I'm like ah, like, I don't know, that's not very good. <laughs>
1: well, I don't share David Cronenberg's fear and skepticism of sexual liberation, although I do think I probably share his fear about, like, the breakdown of society. I don't want to just paint him as, like, a pure reactionary, because his films are complicated. Like, the... Uh, High-rise apartment building, how sterile it is, how ultra-modern it is, obviously that's supposed to be ugly and scary in its own way. He seems skeptical of society, just as he's afraid of the forces that would lead to the breakdown of society. All of
0: his characters in these movies or like the major ones, they are all people that are upper class and wealthy and then are often taken down by once you reach that point, you either need something else to get feeling again. And that is the moral decay that will destroy you. I mean, that is happens in shivers because it's all rich people that live in this high rise. It happens in Rabbit because Marilyn chambers, she gets plastic surgery at a place where rich people get it. And then that infects and goes from there. Same thing was crap. It's very bored people who have comfortable lives and need something else. And so you can see it throughout his film. It's the same thing with Videodrome. Uh, The James Woods character is like someone that's in power and is just looking for more power. And that's what eventually destroys him. What do you think of Rabbit, though, which is essentially like a remake of Shivers? Well,
1: I like Rabbit. I think it's a good horror movie. I I think the idea of a disease that spreads and uh, destroys society is pretty scary. And it is the stuff of nightmares. Yeah,
0: we'd hate to live in some kind of plague time when we will.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think where I depart from Cronenberg and where I have maybe some skepticism towards him is how very kind of sexualized that disease takes and the kind of moral judgment i see him making about the disease like he's not susan sontag he doesn't think that disease is this neutral thing he thinks that disease is a manifestation of something that society represses uh or or, or you know maybe not even that i don't even know what i'm saying disease is a manifestation of some kind of societal decadence but
0: the fact that he goes back to it again and again and obviously loves portraying it on screen isn't there like a weird I don't know, conflict in that, like he's presenting like, oh, you know, subtextually disease, a thing that spreads it, it's horrifying. But isn't it fun to watch it when I bring it to screen and it's super gross? Well,
1: I definitely think that anybody who is as obsessed with perverted sex and also sexual promiscuity as David Cronenberg is, has got to be attracted to it. I mean, he depicts it so lovingly. He depicts, you know, v- vaginal scars so lovingly and he is so obsessed with crossing heteronormative line you know i, I
0: think that, yeah, the only thing that makes me uncomfortable as a hetero white male is like the idea that he often shows that crossing of the line as something horrifying and that should fill you with dread where like watching it now you're like oh that is not just like straight sexual encounters and if you go beyond that then you reach into the true horror which i think is a little bit Disconcerting for me as a viewer watching it today. There's.
1: A certain amount of that in The Brood, which I also watched (laughs) this weekend, which I think is universally regarded as his most reactionary movie. As
0: I say this, are we the Roger Eberts now that are like, how dare they show this on screen? (laughs) Like, pull it down.
1: So absolutely not. Because as I say, I do like David Cronenberg, and I do like watching somebody like work through weird feelings that he has on screen.
0: uh, On the record, me and Will, we, we own all the David Cronenberg films. So yeah, we're cool. We're cool. Some of our best friends are David Cronenberg
1: absolutely if he if he wants to come on the podcast i'd love to talk to him
0: oh he would crush us
1: <laughs> the brood was the one that he made about his own divorce basically where art hindle i guess plays him and samantha Egar plays his ex-wife and she is in this Radical new psychotherapy center run by the great Oliver Drunk Reed. Drunk old Oliver Reed himself. And somewhere in there, like, she develops a kind of misandry, uh, such a strong misandry that it allows her to reproduce asexually. And she creates this brood of children who... Uh, all gang up against poor Art Hindle.
0: I mean, the film is filled with striking images, but it's impossible to watch it now without being like, oh boy, David Cronenberg really hated his wife when he made this movie, or his ex-wife specifically. I
1: do like The Brood, though, because like it, it cuts very deep. It's raw.
0: There's nothing hidden. And you
1: know, I think Cronenberg's movies... They articulate some very pretty universal feelings, you know, feelings of disgust or discomfort or shame in our bodies or with the bodies of other people, uh, discomfort and alienation from our surroundings, and also that feeling of being tempted by dark and twisted desires, you know? He may be have a reactionary streak, but he is tempted.
0: Like, look at his masterpiece, Videodrome. It's the idea that, like, James Wood could be infected by Japanese SNS. <laughs> and it will melt his brain. Did you ever
1: hear the story that he got the idea for Videodrome because he was channel surfing and he hit on City TV that night? For our American listeners, City TV is a Toronto based TV station that was famous and maybe even still is famous for playing like softcore movies at like midnight. And he saw Emmanuel in America by the great Joe D'Amato. And he was so uh, surprised and maybe even appalled by it that he made video. He grabbed
0: the phone and he called the Royal Mounted Police and he's like, I've seen some real snuff movie footage. By the way,
1: we should also say that David Cronenberg has, of course, been the subject of a lot of censorship. He's a
0: very firm anti-censorship case. For people that don't know, Ontario was one of the worst places in Canada to suffer through movie censorship hell. (laughs) Like, you could not even get a film across the border in, like, the 80s and 90s sometimes and had to be, like, smuggled, I don't know, uh, in something else.
1: Did you know that David Cronenberg was evicted from his apartment once because his landlord was so appalled that he had cast Marilyn Chambers in a movie?
0: Insanity. (laughs) So, you know, for all this grousing that I may be doing of like, ah, it's reactionary. He is out there on the front lines, putting it out into the world unabashedly and, you know, stepping up and fighting anybody that wants to limit him from doing that, which is probably like the strongest thing that any filmmaker could do. Let's
1: talk about his most controversial movie, Crash. An
0: adaptation of the J.G. Ballard novel about people who get sexually aroused when they get into car accidents. This is one that I had seen a long time ago, kind of forgotten, rewatch it for this podcast. I'm going to be honest, it doesn't really do much for me. It's kind of like a flat line, like once you know what the subject of it is it just never gets gross enough for me or get deviant enough that's
1: interesting because i saw it again a month or two ago when they played it at the drive-in here in toronto and i was quite compelled by it i mean i think there's nothing else quite like it the plot for those who don't know i'm sure everyone knows but i'll just say it's about this community of people in toronto who are sexually aroused by car accidents. Yes, car accidents. There's James Spader and his wife, Deborah Kara Unger. They're a very bougie, you know, upper class couple. He's a film director. Uh, She is, I don't know what she is.
0: I think that's where my baggage comes in, where it's all these blank, broken people, seemingly with no inner lives who are like, we just keep going because we can't feel who suddenly get this thrill when they live through car accidents. And I understand that it's like, oh, the brush was death. Even the beauty of death is sexually arousing. But that is the film ceases. That is what I got was in the first 10 minutes. And that's how the movie ends. And there isn't really anything else in the middle other than variations on that theme.
1: I hear what you're saying. And I, I kind of agree with you, although I guess I just found it a little more compelling than you did.
0: I mean, you were in the car. Was it a standard? Were you like handling that stick shift <laughs> erotically as you we were watching it? <laughs> but I do think that what's interesting about Crash is that it brings all of the kind of loves David Cronenberg had up to that point. So you have the J.G. Ballardishness of High Rise. You have the kind of like deviant sexuality that he has touched upon in pretty much all of his films. And you have the fact that David Cronenberg loves cars. One of his only horror movies in the early era was Fast Company because he is just a massive gearhead. So knowing that and watching this film also brings like another layer to it, one that he is just very intimate with. It's not just like, oh, I wanna explore an odd, you know, sexual angle or just a different sexual angle. Nothing odd with it. It's more like this is something that is also probably a articulation of something that he feels inside of him as well.
1: I'm going to write my university thesis on uh, technology and the body in the films of David Cronenberg and how technology is kind of an extension of ourselves, you know?
0: Uh, (laughs) And your TA is going to take it and go, thank you, and then throw it in a fire. (laughs) Because why does he even have to read it? He already has 100 different ones that also have that same thesis.
1: I think it's interesting that Crash, like, it's such a minimalist movie in a way. There, there's very little. There, there's very little rising action. There is plot, but like the characters give you so little. The movie opens with three sex scenes, one after another, and that kind of sets the template. It's a movie that's like all sex all the time and and nothing else. When you
0: consider the brouhaha that happened around its release, I think it's related to that. And more specifically, it's related to the fact that it's slick and it looks like a movie that you would see in theaters. And then when you're dealing with this kind of subject matter, that makes people uncomfortable. It's pushing boundaries that you're not expecting to see. I mean, it's kind of like the same boundary he was trying to push in something like Rabid, where you cast Marilyn Chambers, a well-known porn actor, in the main role. So you have her in a uh, quote-unquote straight movie, which creates a kind of disconnect in what you're watching, an odd feeling, especially in the way that things play out. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. The British critic Alexander Walker, who was against the efforts to censor video nasties in the 80s, he was was very anti-censorship, but he did believe in censoring Crash. He wrote that it's a movie beyond the bounds of depravity, containing some of the most perverted acts and theories of sexual deviants. And you watch the movie, and I mean, my theory is, Everybody was all up in arms about the car crash fetishism thing. You know, people would say, "Oh, will this will this inspire copycat cases?" But I think what they were really freaked out about was the gay stuff in the movie, the um, having sex with disabled people, and also fetishizing the disabilities. Roseanne Arquette in the movie, her disabilities are specifically sexualized, and all of the group sex stuff. I think the car crash stuff gave certain cultural commentators a convenient out for for not admitting that it was the actual the other stuff was what bothered them, and
0: I think that people need to remember that when this movie came out, it was not in the middle. I think it was near the end of the wave of the erotic thriller, which just was huge in the 90s, and you can kind of trace that back to something like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the Steven Soderbergh film, that people are like, I can't believe the way it's talking about sexuality, and that starred James Spader, and then you then watch James Spader again in Crash, which makes viewers kind of go, okay, wait, so now I have to rethink the way that I reacted to Sex, Lies, which also starred this person, within this thing that because it is so abnormal compared to what I think about every day, or maybe I do think about this stuff and I don't want to vocalize it. I need to kind of be against it. As a provocation, I'm all for even though the movie for me didn't really do that much.
1: Well, it is a pretty cold experience. It's not one that I would want to watch every day. <laughs> um, I wish
0: it was just a little bit more rising action. I wanted people having sex with like the bones sticking out of their uh, arms or legs or like their necks are broken and they're trying to make love.
1: <laughs> I agree. I, I would love to see kind of the John Waters version of this because I think David Cronenberg is quite a sex negative filmmaker. Crash has a Erotic moments. I think it has moments that are meant to be erotic, but I mean, he. Uh, he depicts a lot of it as Isn't
0: this crazy? Isn't this
1: gross? It's like a downward spiral and, you know, it ends with James Spader and Deborah Kara Unger at the side of the road you know, no longer satisfied, you know they, they they gotta get the next big hit or whatever. You know, I can imagine the John Waters version of this movie where everybody's just having a good time, you know, fucking over their crashed cars, right? Yeah, it
0: just <laughs> ends with everybody crashing, big smiles on their faces, just like climaxing like they've never climaxed. I would like to see that version of the movie too. It's called A Dirty Shame. I was about to say, yes.
1: A Dirty Shame (laughs) is his Cronenberg movie. That's his shivers.
0: Where everybody's actually happy about what they're doing as opposed to being horrified and being bathed in blue light. Something I should point out about David Cronenberg is I do love... That He just lives in Toronto and he shoots his movies in Toronto. He's not going to move away. He's not going to do the big Hollywood lifestyle. Even Maps to the Stars shot around the corner from me. <laughs> and that movie takes place in L.A., but it's shot in
1: Toronto. I like that David Cronenberg is around. Like, you'll see him at the lightbox. <laughs> That's right.
0: Don't approach him, though. It makes
1: things more interesting. Him and Agoyan are, are the two auteurs that you are most likely to run into in Toronto. We
0: should talk about just the later period of Cronenberg, because there is a push you get the sense from him. Late 90s, early 2000s where he's like I don't want to be the body horror guy anymore. I want to do different stuff. So you get a history of violence, which I believe was a pretty big hit and so was Eastern Promises as well.
1: Yeah, these were the movies that were received as prestige films and and sort of were kind of Oscar contender type movies. And I mean, they are more I guess mainstream looking than a lot of his other movies, but I do think they they are unmistakably Cronenberg movies the way that he's interested in calm, placid surfaces and sensing the rot underneath them, you know, as well as his fascination with bodily mutilation, which continues. And
0: just the style, which is unadorned and direct. Even something like Eastern Promises, like the big highfalutin fight scene is just like in your face, but it's not like documentary style or anything like that. He's still shooting it kind of removed from what's going on. And it's that removal that I think makes more of an impact to when people watch it. My issue with Eastern Promises is It feels like the pilot for a TV show. It just kind of like ends like they're like, oh, we ran out of money. This is the end of the movie. It does
1: end pretty abruptly. I mean, both of these movies, they do feel Cronenbergian in the way that they feel like descents into these dark worlds that are hiding just beneath a friendly, normal exterior I think Eastern Promises is, like, a very solid thriller. Uh, It's not the movie that I would watch if I wanted a a taste of Cronenberg.
0: You know that in A History of Violence, there's a famous, like, deleted dream sequence where there's a big Cronenbergian effect, where, like, one of the people, like, their chest breaks open and, like, a bunch of crazy stuff happens? And Cronenberg shot it and went, "Uh uh-uh, that's too close to what I usually do. Cut it out of the movie. That's
1: funny because there is that scene in A History of Violence. I don't know if you remember it, but it's after the attack where early in the movie where Viggo Mortensen is able to intercede the robbery at the place. And there's just this close up shot of like a guy lying on the ground with his mutilated face. And I remember I remember seeing that and thinking that, oh, yeah, David got one in, you know, I
0: mean, Eastern Promises, all the necks that are slit, you can just feel him being like, oh, yeah, this is what I showed up in the morning for. <laughs> this is the classic Rodenberg. I
1: love the history of violence. Uh, I think after Eastern Promises, he gets back to sort of a I don't want to say non-commercial, but he gets back into a more uncompromising direction. Yeah, in an
0: experimental direction that he is clearly approaching stuff like Cosmopolis or even Maps of the Stars from a direction of like, I want this to be very me. And that if that's like pushing against any commercial ideas then I will do so almost again as a provocation. I remember after A History of Violence there was a lot of talk that like he was writing a big like 50 million or 100 million Denzel Washington movie and maybe that falling apart made him go all right I want to go back to my roots all right Canadian government give me some money I'm gonna make a movie I'll bring a few big stars. <laughs> maybe Julianne Moore will show up with the Canadian Screen Awards if we nominate her she won't. But, you know, that's that's what David Cronenberg is good for, because he is such a recognizable name to bring honor to the Canadian people.
1: One of my favorite facts about Cronenberg is all of those sequels that he turned down in the 80s. I mean, I guess The Fly and The Dead Zone were popular enough that he kept being offered, like, Alien Three, or uh, <laughs> you know, Top Gun Two, he was offered, and I think he even said at one point, "I didn't even want to make the Fly Two. Why would I want to make Top Gun 2 Why would
0: you approach him to make Top Gun Two for the same reason that
1: you approached David Lynch to make Return of the Jedi? Yeah, you know? he
0: made something popular, and you know, maybe you can continue that popularity streak. I, and, the- and I admire in Cronenberg how
1: throughout his career, even as he went more mainstream, quote unquote, he still stuck remarkably close to his pre. Occupations. He really followed his muse. All of the later movies still feel of a piece with the earlier yeah, ones. Yeah, you don't
0: really watch any David Cronenberg films and go, ah, this is the sellout one. He may be trying some stuff that you're not having a reaction to, but he's always speaking in his own voice. He never compromised in a way of like, one for them, one for me. It's always a David Cronenberg film.
1: Now, do we have any letters this week?
0: We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from, I will try to pronounce his name at the end because he makes a joke about it. Hello, I'm a recent subscriber writing to, first of all, express my appreciation for your fine work. I'm glad to have found a place for cinephile discussion since the capitalist swine shut down Film Comment and its podcast. Rest in peace. Did we talk about when Film Comment
1: shut down? Uh, we might have mentioned it. I was very sad about that. I love Film Comment. I
0: love Film Comment. I think it was my favorite, like, regular new movie magazine other than Shock Cinema, which I don't consider a new movie magazine, because there was such a great split between, like, oh, we're talking about new stuff. Stuff in a vaguely interesting way. And also, here's some retrospectives. Here's some new uh, Blu-rays that are coming out. Here are some books. Here are some interviews about films that have been rediscovered or remastered. There's like this great section that was like remastered films, like new releases that are on their way out because studios had picked them up or discovered them. And I mean, film comments shut down the instant the, like the pandemic happened. So they were waiting to pull that trigger and just waiting for something to like activate it.
1: Yeah, it's too bad. Well, Lincoln Center is still there, but the impression I got was that, you know, film comment was basically owned by this institution where, you know, whoever the board of directors was, whoever was in charge was like, why do we have this? Do we really need this? It's
0: like sight and sound exist, which is one that I can never get into. Maybe I'll grit my teeth and try again now that film comment
1: is gone. Well, a lot of the same writers write for it. You Uh, know,
0: There you go. So the letter continues. Secondly, I'd like to suggest an episode on some facet of Polish cinema. As far as I can tell, the only Polish filmmaker that you have covered is Roman Polanski. Only in the Patreon episode. Only in the Patreon episode. I'd enjoy an episode on one of the many worthy Polish directors who are not fiendish sex criminals. I recommend Walian Borazowski or Andrzej Zulowski. I'd also be pleased to hear your thoughts about the probably more readily available work of... Kirstov Kielowski?
1: Kielowski, I think, yeah.
0: Agnieszka Holin, Andrev Wajda? Do you say the J in there? Wada? I think it's
1: Wajda. Is it pronounced w- Wajda? I
0: don't know. Uh, or Zalowski are a lot weirder and therefore better. If you're kind enough to read this letter on the show, I look forward to your attempts to pronounce these names. It went exactly as you thought it would. Uh, sincerely, Jenkuyem Bardzo. He... Uh, gave the pronunciation of his name here. And I'm sure I probably still got it wrong. Uh, Polish cinema is interesting, especially that, you know, those World Cinema box sets that were coming out from like the um, World Cinema Organization, that there were Polish box sets that were done earlier than that of just Polish films that Martin Scorsese like sponsored, but they never got much wide distribution.
1: Definitely the letter writer mentions some names that we would like to do. We've talked about doing uh, Zalowski, for instance.
0: Every time I bring it up, Will's like, uh, it's hard work. And it yeah. is,
1: but we will we will do it. We will do it. It's just his movies are very are very long and very exhausting,
0: and the other ones are really interesting as well. There's a lot of fun avenues that you can go down. I mean, I'm a huge fan of I think it's just the Sargosa manuscripts. I don't remember who the director of that one is, but it stars the guy that stars in Ashes and Diamonds. And it's basically like, Um, You know, somebody reads a story and then in that story, somebody else reads a story and then in that story, somebody else reads a story. So essentially like that uh, Forbidden Room uh, movie that uh, Guy Madden made, which has that same kind of like um, enveloping spiral structure. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get to uh, Polish filmmakers. I feel like we wouldn't even have to do like an introduction to Polish film because like even those names mentioned, I know them like right away, even if I may not be 100% familiar with all their work. But, you know, that's what we're here for, to dive into that and then stumble through the topic, hoping that we got most of the stuff right. (laughs) So thank you very much for that letter. And Our next one is from Hunter Sawyer, and it goes, Hello, important cinema clubberos. Ooh, bros in in, uh, Important Cinema Club. I don't know if I like that. (laughs) Short-time listener in term of years. Long-time fan in terms of amount of time pouring over y'all's back catalog in a matter of months. Quarantine does strange things to the brain. I imagine that, like, it's like a David Cronenberg film. Someone that just, like, listens nonstop to the Important Cinema Club. Their body is changing. They start, like, wearing glasses, watching more Hong Kong cinema. (laughs) They just can't help themselves. And the letter continues... I found your podcast to be the perfect accompaniment to playing massive multiplayer online role-playing games because it's always makes me feel guilty that I spend so much time playing video games where the vast nebulas of film that I have yet to explore beyond y'all's podcasts. Speaking of things that make the perfect accompaniment, Will, I've recently started making my way through Samuel Delany's epic account of gay sex life held in and around the porn theaters that dotted Times Square until the triumph of evil that marked the era called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Given your interest in the subject, I was wondering if A, you have read this particular volume, and B, if you had any other books or materials to recommend to someone such as myself that is interested in this period of porn history but are too lazy to use Google. (laughs) And thanks again for the hours of free dungeon-crawling background noise, and I eagerly await the full-length episode on Jamie Gillis. Uh, Sincerely, Erica,
1: I have read Times Square, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney. My girlfriend actually got it for me as a birthday present a couple years ago. Uh, It's a great book. I absolutely love it. Delaney in that book came up with a, a really weird and fascinating theory that these porn movie theaters in Times Square, which were often gay cruising grounds, uh, including the straight porn movie theaters would be gay cruising grounds, especially after the advent of video, that these were almost like communal spaces where people from across class lines would congregate and encounter each other, which is an interesting idea. If you're interested in books about pornography, there's a book called The Other Hollywood, which is kind of like the definitive oral history by Legs McNeil. If you're interested in Times Square um, and and sort of the New York sex world, I highly recommend a book called "Tales of Times Square" by Josh Allen Friedman. Uh, Josh Allen Friedman was is Drew Friedman's brother, and he's Bruce J. Friedman's son, and he worked at Screw Magazine for a while, and it's a collection of journalism that he did at. Uh, screw magazine. So some of it is about like stuff that was happening in the sex world in New York at the time. But also he he like kind of took his job very seriously. He took the idea that he was a beat reporter in Times Square very seriously. So he did interesting Damon Runyon-ish profiles of just the local eccentrics who lived and inhabited Times Square. And who can
0: forget the ultimate uh, singular view of Times Square cinema's Sleezoid Express by Bill Landis. Oh, I'm
1: glad you brought that up. I almost forgot. Yeah, Sleezoid Express. It was a magazine originally, but it's there's a great book by Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford, which goes theater by theater in Times Square. It doesn't really get into pornography, but it talks a lot about the grindhouse cinemas and what they were like. Like it paints a little word picture of. them.
0: Yeah, I think it's better to approach it as like this kind of wild beat poetry and in the moment energy as opposed to like facts because, you know, Bill Landis was often off the cuff and there's stuff you'll read about that book concerning the filmmakers he talks about that were disapproved almost instantly afterwards. (laughs) Especially he has like a long chapter about uh, Michael and Roberta Finley that not all of that stuff is true.
1: Bill Landis also wrote a long essay about Phil Prince, the guy who did uh, The Taming of Rebecca. He did this long essay which for years was the only thing available about Phil Prince and it was full of things like, yeah, he went out and murdered somebody and he went to prison and then he got out of prison and he went and, and murdered somebody else as restitution. Oh,
0: didn't he rob an ice cream shop as well? Was that part of his story? Now, I think that actually might have been true. Uh, that can't, did happen. It, and I think he went to jail for it as well. Yeah, but he
1: didn't he didn't do a revenge killing after that was just like a straight lie that Bill, Bill Landis perpetuated. We talk
0: about this uh, podcast all the time, even though I feel like we haven't mentioned like 100 episodes. There is a great Rialto report about Phil Prince and... And if this letter writer is interested in that kind of Times Square atmosphere, you got to listen to every episode of the Rialto Report, just stories of the people who were in that golden age of pornography from their own mouths. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much, Erica, for that letter. And as per usual, you can send us emails at Porn Cinema podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about the Polonia Brothers and their film Splatter Farm. Now, that title may make you think, oh, is that like a Peter Jackson style, bad taste, gore, fun, Sam Raimi-ish thing? No, it is not. How would you describe it, Will?
1: Oh, it's like a couple of teenagers who got together and were like, We got a camcorder. Let's make the grossest movie we can. And they got it distributed, sort of.
0: And even though it's the grossest movie that they could imagine, it just comes out as a fun time. How can that be? You have to listen to the episode. And we talk about uh, the Polonia Brothers prolific filmography as well. That goes to this day, even though they made that movie, I think in the 80s, you can listen to that episode by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club podcast and becoming a Patreon subscriber for five dollars a month. And don't worry, guys, we will be um, doing the Ernest Marathon th- soon. And once we do, we'll record the episode on that day and we will post it. So that's
1: right, Justin. Let's do it uh, next week, shall we? Um, we'll talk. We'll talk off, Mike. We'll hammer down a date.
0: So, Will, what are we doing next week?
1: Next week, we will be exploring some of the movies that are in a favorite book of Justin's and mine, Nightmare USA by Stephen Thrower. This is one of the great film books. It's the definitive chronicle of regional horror filmmakers in the United States, uh, people who were not in New York and L.A., people who were not in any way connected to the mainstream film industry, but they uh, got a camera, they got a crew. They got some actors and they put their eccentric visions on the screen. Uh, Justin, I feel like you know some of the movies a little better than I do. What are some of the movies we should watch? So I
0: recommend checking out Deathbed because that hits the point of that like one time filmmaker who made one picture that is super weird, but has a very kind of... Um, personal vision. And I would also recommend watching Frozen Scream. I want to do that one because it will allow us to enter the world of Renee Harmon, one of the weirdest figures that ever worked in cinema. I don't know if you ever heard about her, Will. She starred in Lady Street Fighter, not to be confused with Sister Street Fighter. She produced The Executioner 2, even though that there is no Executioner 1. And she, even though she had a very thick accent, wrote like, dozens and dozens of books on how to act. (laughs) Uh, Frozen Scream is one I believe she wrote, produced, and stars in. She never really directed any films herself, but uh, it's a really interesting um, starting off point to talk about her career. We'll probably think of some other ones just that hit those beats. Like, I love Curse of the Screaming Dead, but that one would take dedication because you would have to watch the original version that was shot on video and then the version that was shot on film afterwards. And, uh, spoiler alert, they are both paced slower than any movie you have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're doing next week, Nightmare USA. If you don't own the book, I highly recommend um, running out and buying a copy. I don't know if it's still in print. (laughs) Until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. As per usual, I would like to thank some of our new patrons that have recently subscribed to our Patreon channel. And those include Laura, Nathaniel Tyson, Dawid, Sideburn, Luke Wellington, Hunter Sawyer, Ivy Parsons, new Cole Flowers, John Petrovich, Mr. S., Thomas Shepard, Johnny Mockney, Jeff Wood Jones, Eric Ward, Aylin O'Dalag, Sadie Hawkins Pod, David Wynn, Jacob Schroer, Adam Nabb, Jennifer Gibbons, Sebastian Lepre, Daniel Newton, Andrew Knight, CMPN, Charlie Yeo, Mr. Slaw, Ben Mendina, Steve Putz, Ian Elliott, Benjamin Brody Turnbull, Simon, James Renfort Frederick, Johannes Schoninger, Neil Macgiola, Gale Samir Patel, AJ, Sean Fuller, Paul Merrick, Patrick Zettel, Luigi Oswego, and Annette. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And as we talked about on the last episode, the Gold Ninja Video releases of Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh's Don't Let the Rubies Get You Blu-ray are now available at goldninjavideo.com as well as the Creature from Black Lake Blu-ray, which is a underseen Bigfoot film that was shot in the 70s. But the Blu-ray itself is a celebration of horror movie marathons and includes the bonus feature Impulse, starring William Shatner as a psychotic serial killer, and tons of special features about how to do the perfect movie marathon, the history of shock marathons, me and Will talking at length about regional horror films, and so much more, liner notes bonus Easter eggs, all the good stuff. And as we also said, me and Will's new book, Moturn on Morturn, our full-length career interviews with Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh, is also available at the goldninjavideo.com page. And that one is also available now on Amazon as well. And also, if you don't get enough of me on The Important Cinema Club, you could... Listen to me on the Bay Street Video podcast, where me and Mark Hansen go through all of the new Blu-rays and DVDs that are released every week, live from the Bay Street Video Brick and Mortar store in Toronto, Canada. And I'm also on bi-weekly, the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast, where me, Colin Cunningham, and April Atmansky pick a so-called bad movie and try to find the positive points in it. You can also catch Will on the Michael and Us podcast, where he and his co-host, Luke Savage, go through all sorts of bad political style movies and, you know, talk about what's going on in the news. So after all of those endless plugs, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. I uh, saw one of your tweets pop up and it was one of those spicy, hot, fiery takes just to get people's hackles riled up.
1: Whenever Justin says, I saw one of your tweets pop up, I know that I'm going to get, I'm in for a lashing. I know he's going to make fun of me.
0: (laughs) Not a lashing. Did I hesitate? And uh, my finger hover over the keys to write a response along the lines of, Will, you're not going to like the people who respond positively or negatively to this post there are no winners on your side no i
1: like the people who respond positively i like my my little disciples i like my flock i like i like people who like what i have to say you're (laughs) slow (laughs) nets.
0: so basically the tweet was david fincher is overrated he just adapts paperback novels like airport novels in a very meticulous way like He does 500 takes to make himself feel important, and he sucks. And Will Sloan hates him, right? That's what he basically would boil down to, right? Will?
1: That's what it boiled down to. Although, like, I actually don't hate him. You know what? What it was was with Mank. I saw something on Wikipedia, which is the most reliable source of all time, saying that a lot of it would be about uh, the dispute in uh, authorship credit of the Citizen Kane screenplay between Herman Mankiewicz and Wells. Which is like, oh my god, not this thing again. Not
0: so. Really, you just wanted to bring that up, but you knew that wasn't fiery enough to get people like to reply. So you needed like that entry point to just like bag on David Fincher a little bit at the top.
1: I do think uh, David Fincher is a little overrated. I would agree. Uh, yeah, he's a guy who, yeah, he does like 200 takes of every scene because he thinks he's Stanley Kubrick. But in reality, he's he's the director of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I mean, come
0: on. <laughs> the remake. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's made some very good movies. But Will, 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 haven't you seen that video essay where they talk about that he's, wi- he's reading books that are not in English? And what does that mean within the context of his movie? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, well,
0: anyway, so, But Mank, the subject matter itself is something that you're like, ugh. Because, you know, Orson Welles has been punched enough. He needs to be, you know, taken out of the darkness and respected. I think
1: clearly corporate America never forgave him for taking complete creative control and then making the best movie ever. And so now and so now <laughs> they deploy David Fincher, a, a corporately sanctioned auteur to say, well, actually, filmmaking is a collaborative process. Uh, the
0: great Vertigo conspiracy. What, Citizen Kane isn't on the top of the best movies of all time? No, Vertigo is there now. Well, it's funny that you made that tweet. And then today they posted a trailer for it. Did you watch the trailer? Yeah, clearly they posted that trailer to
1: rebut me, (laughs) but I did watch the trailer and actually the trailer made my skin crawl a little bit. I mean, maybe, maybe the movie will be good. I don't know, but it's like, it's done in that. It looks like they put an old timey Instagram filter just on a digital camera. Uh, I don't know. I don't like the look of it. What did you think?
0: Uh, I don't know. It didn't really do anything for me. It seems maybe they're approaching it from the perspective of instead of the clash between uh, Herbert Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. Okay, so people may be listening to this and have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) Very likely. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, Pauline Kael wrote an article, a very long article. What was it called again? It was called Raising Cain. That boiled down to... Herman Mankiewicz is the genius behind Citizen Kane, not Orson Welles. It was also pushing back against the auteur theory that at that time, Andrew Sarris was pushing very strongly.
1: Yeah, and it was it was suggesting too that uh, Wells might have tried to rob Mankiewicz of credit and also that Mankiewicz was the sole author of the screenplay, which was a assertion that I think has been pretty decisively debunked. Like scholars have looked at various drafts of the screenplay and have been able to actually determine what each man brought. I to mean, it. we
0: said it when we did a Pauline Kale episode. She's a troll. That's why she wrote that article and but when it was published it was basically taken in many circles of just gospel it was at the beginning of the um, published screenplay much to the surprise of Orson Welles it's still in print
1: people still cite it you know even though it's been pretty thoroughly debunked
0: I mean let's look at the um, work that the screenwriter did afterwards and the work that Orson Welles did afterwards hmm. <laughs> Yeah. It's ah, still still so tough to say. I mean, looking at the trailer, it almost seems as well as like a look into look at this debauched A world of 30s Hollywood and Herbert Mankiewicz is the kind of, um, I don't know, every man that's like looking through this environment. Because if you look at the credits, it's all like famous people played by actors. Yeah,
1: it's got it's it's that Ryan Murphy shit of like, oh, well, uh, maybe the Golden Age wasn't so golden. Uh, Did you know that there were actually bad things that happened in Hollywood? Yeah, it was
0: shit. It's like, like everywhere is shit. It always is shit. The thing that threw me off about the trailer is that. There's a whole bunch of like recreations of scenes from Citizen Kane, but with Mank as the center of it. I'm like, oh my God. That's essentially like, where did Han Solo get his um, jacket? It's like, who cares? (laughs) Like, don't show me this
1: stuff. All these recreations are depicted in the most sterile, kind of affectless way. Like,
0: you see the uh, shot of the snow globe falling out of uh, Orson Welles' hand at the beginning of Citizen Kane, but in this time, it's a bottle in Mank's hand, and you're like, oh, but David Fincher's shooting it in the most boring style, so perfectly precise. When If you watch that opening from Citizen Kane, it is like all over the place. Like there's a bunch of quick cuts, like the camera's almost jerking around to catch the action. And that's not really David Fincher's thing. I
1: also hate what this movie does and what the artist did, where it like takes the styles and aesthetics of yesteryear and is like, Look at how kind of old-timey this is. Look at how uh, corny this is. I mean, maybe the movie won't actually be like that. Maybe that's just the Netflix trailer, but it rubs me the wrong way. Yeah,
0: like The trailer has the, like, um, starring Gary Oldman, and it feels so false and not, like, real. It's like what you do when you're in high school and you're doing, like, aha, we're throwing back. It's the, like, uh, highbrow version of all those, like, Grindhouse trailers that were coming out following Grindhouse. (laughs) I just really hope there's scenes where it's, like, uh, you know, like in the beach boys biography where it's like oh man i'm feeling these good vibrations and they're like good vibrations eh (laughs) but there's a scene where it's like let me get my cane you know i feel like a real citizen when i have this and i can walk on these paved streets
1: you remember that tv movie about the three stooges where they discover the eye poke
0: i don't remember the scene
1: it's like they're all playing poker together and one of them pokes the other one in the eye and and like larry is like that's good we can use that
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, so good. But you know, even though you may be uh grousing, as somebody else pointed in that thread, we're both gonna watch the movie. <laughs> like... Of course. <laughs>